Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name is David Pembroke, and thank you very much for joining me today. Today, we have a very special conversation with Olga Stankova. Now, just as a bit of a pre-warning, it's a bit longer than normal. Normally, we sort of try to stick to it about 30 minutes, but Olga has such a wealth of experience, we feel that this one is probably going to be a bit longer. So it might stretch out to about an hour, and I'm pretty sure that there'll be a lot of insight that we can take from exploring um, not only Olga's current role, where she is the Senior Communications Officer and Special Assistant to the IMF's Director of Communications, but also to draw on uh, previous experience. Because currently, Olga leads the technical assistance and conducts research on economic policy communications, and she also manages outreach for the fund's strategy and policy work. But previously, she was responsible for communications on the World Economic Outlook and the Global Financial Stability Report. And prior to that, she was the senior press officer for all of the countries of the former Soviet Union, along with many countries in Europe and the Middle East. She also worked at the European Central Bank during the global financial crisis. And I'm really interested to know and understand what it was like in the middle of the global financial crisis and the role that communications played in settling that particular crisis. But previous to that also, um, Olga was director of marketing with the Russian investment bank, Troika Dialogue, and also chief of the banking and investment division of the United States Agency for International Development in Moscow. But where I came across Olga and her work was recently she uh, released a paper, uh, The Frontiers of Economic Policy Communications from the International Monetary Fund. And I would commend you to have a look at that piece of research because it is quite interesting in terms of the importance of communications as a policy tool. So if you pick that up and have a look or, or look for that, so it's Olga Stankova, S-T-A-N-K-O-V-A, International Monetary Fund, Frontiers of Economic Policy Communication. So let me commend that to you after the podcast. But certainly what it does is highlight the emerging importance of effective communication to successfully develop and implement policy. But for the moment, Olga joins me on the line from the International Monetary Fund's office in Washington, D.C. Olga, thank you very much for joining me on GovComs. Thank you, David. Thank you for this kind introduction. So, Olga, before we get into the work, the substantive discussion around the frontiers of economic policy communications, I'm, I'm really interested in your background and and how you've found your way to where you are today. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you've obviously had, you know, wonderful experience in, in lots of different places. So perhaps if you might just take us back to, to the start of your career, you know, where, where, where did you get started in, in communication? 
Well, I started in communications um, in, uh, as you mentioned, Troika Dialogue, investment bank in Russia. And there I was working mostly on uh, promoting research of the bank. And that was with financial sector, to some extent with the press, to some extent uh, to the government. And uh, that was first uh, experience in communications. Okay. And into what before then? Um, what was your background? What did you What did you study? All right, I studied economics. Uh, studied economics. I have PhD in economics uh, from uh, uh, one of the Moscow universities. And uh, before Troika Dialogue, uh, I worked uh, with the U.S. Agency for International Development in Moscow, Russia. So that was previous experience. To some extent, it involved communications because we accompanied some of the technical assistance projects by uh, communications, communicating what are the goals and what is accomplished, what, what is supposed to be accomplished under them. Yeah. So it was early in your career, you know, post-PhD, where you started to see uh, the importance of communications, if indeed people were going to understand what those research papers were, were trying to, um, to to say to particular audiences. That's correct. Mm. So listen, um, through that experience that you've had um, across, uh, you know, not only at Troika Dialogue, but some of those uh, other senior jobs, certainly working at the European Central Bank during the global financial crisis, how... How important was communications when you were dealing with the global financial crisis? Well, communications during the crisis is a special art in a sense, uh, and it has crucial role in crisis. And um, we hope that uh, the experience of communications following the global financial crisis will not be lost and that people will continue learning lessons from that experience and carry them if needed, you know, in the future. What is very important in crisis communications, that messages are mutually supportive of each other. And that is important for coordination also among policymakers. So, so in terms of that, if you could just take us back to that particular time, could you perhaps tell us a few stories of, of how... Um, you, as someone who was involved in the communications team, was working with the policymakers to make sure that those messages were mutually supportive and how you were deciding about the type of language that you were going to be using and the types of channels and, and the types of frequency that you were going to be communicating. Um, I would say that I worked uh, during the period the, in, during the period of the global financial cl- crisis 2000 and 2009. I spent with the ECB, and I also spent some years on crisis communications with the IMF uh, after I came back from the ECB because IMF was involved in euro area crisis. In particular, I worked on Ireland during that period of time. So, this is experience from different sides. Um, from a major central bank dealing with the crisis and from the IMF dealing with the crisis and country matters during the crisis. With the European Central Bank, definitely challenges were to make sure that countries of the euro area receive information immediately. And this is a challenge of languages. 
there are many languages. Translation has to be made immediately in all the languages of the Euro area countries. There are also challenges for reaching different media in these countries. They are at different levels of maybe understanding some complex complexities of monetary policy. So the team at the ECB was working on uh, reaching this comprehensive coverage in terms of their outreach. On um, experience on country matter, particular country, Ireland, that I worked during the Euro area crisis, that was reaching audiences and key stakeholders within the country. And translating technical language, for us we call it fundies, uh, technical language of the fund, in the plain language that many audiences uh, speak in different languages a little bit and having different interests, needs and concerns would relate to was a major challenge. We also worked with other European institutions, the Commission and the European Central Bank, together on this. At that point in time, were you well prepared to deal with the crisis, given the complexity that you were dealing with? Um, you know, there was definitely some experience, and that takes me maybe back to my initial point. Uh, the fund dealt uh, with a number of crises, IMF, um, and that experience definitely helped in dealing with uh, the global financial crisis and uh, the euro area crisis. And, that, and that's my point that we hope that that experience, most recent experience, most recent crisis will not be lost and will inform policymakers going forward. As we know, crises always will come. And they will be dealt with. Hopefully that experience will help. Mm. But we learned a lot, David. We learned a lot. Yeah. So so tell me about some of the things that you you did learn in those, you know, I can't imagine the, the, the types of pressure that you must have been under at that particular time where it was a genuine crisis. You know, often the word gets used, overused. Um, but that was a, a genuine crisis. So as as the, one of the senior communications team, what, what was some of the advice that you would give people if they do find themselves in really harsh, oppressive, time-poor environments that, you know, what do they need to do to be as effective as possible? You know, you can never uh, truly prepare for a crisis. Uh, one of the features of the crisis that it always comes in a new form and with new challenges. What still uh, perhaps the wisdom of preparation still applies. You know, crisis management exercises, simulations are now uh, increasingly include communications component as people realize more and more the importance of communications, especially now a day and age with technology and you know, speed uh, of communications, the spread, um, that becomes increasingly understood and important. So preparations, um, with the caveat that you can never fully prepare for a crisis, however, it would help, preparations would help, but you will have to think of your feet always. Mm. And in terms of capturing those lessons, and being able to, to hold on to that knowledge and to be able to leverage that knowledge, how well is the IMF 
capturing those lessons to ensure that in, in the future that it is better able um, to respond effectively and perhaps better able to share uh, with its stakeholders how they can respond more effectively. Uh, I would have a lot. I would have. To, I would like to give a lot of credit to IMF management, senior staff, and generally IMF communications department for uh, doing their best to accumulate this knowledge, to preserve the lessons, and to ensure institutional knowledge management in this area. This knowledge is also available to IMF all IMF member countries at the request IMF provides assistance and advice on communication. So IMF is sharing this with member countries and uh, helping them to build up their communications capacity in this area, in the area of communications. Mm. So with that, um, and away from the crises, what's your your view at the moment about uh, how policymakers in the IMF are understanding the potential of communication to help them to achieve their their business objectives. Is there a, a broad acceptance that communications is a is is a critical tool and an important tool for them to use, or does communications inside the IMF still, uh, like in many public sector organisations, is not considered along with say perhaps the um, you know the, the 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 legal departments and the the uh, uh, economic departments, the policy departments, as the the primary areas of of function for an organisation such as the IMF. Communications is uh, communications greatly appreciated at the IMF. You know, IMF has a communication strategy. And it's um, a document that is discussed by the IMF Executive Board. And it's a document that is published on IMF uh, website. And it's a document that is reviewed on a regular basis. Communications department is responsible for preparing the strategy. And then it's uh, reviewed by the management and approved by the Executive Board, as I mentioned. But beyond that, beyond uh, the strategy and the document, uh, uh, the IMF has been in putting so much effort into integrating operations and communications. There is so much appreciation by uh, departments, by senior staff at the fund, of importance of communications for their policies. Communications can never substitute, can never be a substitute for good policies, but without understanding and acceptance of economic reforms and economic policies by those whom they affect, these policies will more likely fail or be even reversed. There is understanding of this importance of building public support. Yes, it's a, it's a critical function, isn't it? And it's, that's very encouraging to hear that it's integrated so centrally into the you know day to day operations of the IMF, and it's seen as that you know strategic lever um, that it should be. So, in terms of the IMF team itself and that communications team, can you can you give us a bit of an outline of? what sort of capability exists inside the IMF communications team? 
Uh, it's a communications department. And its uh, department is, uh, you know, we have internal classification of departments and functional departments are policy departments like monetary and financial um, markets department, fiscal affairs department. And policy departments uh, develop their policy areas the same about communications department. It's a functional department and communications is viewed as a policy tool in its own right at the fund. So the team is very important and the team works uh, in two systems. It's a system of functional divisions, media relations, digital communications, which is social media, public affairs, um, policy communications, publications. There are many functional divisions. There is also metrics teams uh, system where people join from various divisions and work on particular policy areas. Hmm and work with particular departments. So it's uh, it's two structures within the department. And how many people would you have in that uh, department? It's between 80 and 90 at the moment. And is that at full strength? Is that is is that uh, as big as it's been? And is, is it a growing area inside the IMF? It's not growing. We have not been growing for quite a while. Uh, it's a flat budget at the IMF. So the number of staff is, is uh, at the established level. I think what we are trying to accomplish is to grow ourselves in terms of our expertise and capacity. Mm. To integrate better within the department. To integrate better without, with other departments to be at the far front of at the forefront of technology to see what are the trends and how we can implement most uh, advanced uh, trends and technology in our communication so it's growing the quality of communications team yeah okay. and it's it's interesting that's a fairly common sort of approach i think generally referred to as the digital dividend of how can you use technology to become more productive and challenge yourself to become more productive through better work practices in order to deliver against whatever the uh, program of activity or the, the particular business objectives are. So it doesn't surprise me that that's the way that you're going about it. So just drawing back on your experience perhaps and, and uh, how things are at the moment, can you give us some sort of insight into the way that uh, a typical planning cycle might look like for the IMF? And then once we understand that planning cycle, what a, what a day might look like inside the IMF um, communications department? And if indeed there is such a thing as a typical day? <laughs> we, we say that a typical day, it would be a never, never a dull moment. <laughs> Um, so we definitely uh, try to plan and plan as much as advanced as possible. The fund, in fact, uh, a little advertisement, we will soon publish um, a work program for the, for the IMF executive board, which means um, a, a, a range of um, 
policy papers and uh, policy discussions, policy products that the fund will be focusing on over the next six to 12 months. We align our communications with the work program. We also know that there is a cycle of what we call Article 4 consultations, which is macroeconomic surveillance over IMF member countries. We also know that there are programs and programs have their critical milestones, their review uh, moments where communications come into full force. And we always know that it's never a dull moment and we will have something unexpected on our hands from one part of the world or another, from one country or another. So it's a combination of planning cycle. It can be a longer term planning cycle, shorter term planning cycle, and it's also expect the unexpected type yeah. of approach. And so on on any particular day, is there a like a stand-up meeting at the beginning of the day where the team comes together and so they understand what the priority is, is on any particular day? We have... Uh, Twice a week, uh, we have these exactly kind of meetings um, when the entire department is welcome for about 30 minute quick review of the issues of the week and uh, maybe the following week, how we address them, what's new, what's on the horizon for this period of time. Also, we have, of course, a calendar of events going a month or two forward, but nonetheless, the meeting on Monday is focused on the week. And the meeting on Wednesday is focused on maybe the end of the week and the beginning of the next week. This is a rolling kind of calendar and process. Yeah. And in terms of your measurement uh, and evaluation of your effectiveness, how how do you track your effectiveness? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, a challenge. It's a challenge that we, we are trying to address. We certainly... Uh, do what we call impact reports, how policy messages were received by various audiences, what was press response, uh, what was maybe response in academia and think tanks and policymaker community. This is done through review of the press coverage and also through interviews and surveys periodically of these uh, key audiences for us. Yeah, we, we we are doing regularly this exercise after every major event, after our what we call uh, annual meetings and then spring meetings, after major releases, we always look into uh, impact assessment and how we should allocate, reallocate resources, what worked, what didn't work. Yeah. In terms of that, um, what are you seeing at the moment? And again, it, it's probably a very hard question to answer because I imagine each part of the work program is quite different, uh, focused on a different audience, perhaps in a different, even at a community level in a different country. So different types of tactics and different types of stories are going to work in different parts of the world. But as a, if could you offer perhaps a, a, a broad view on what you're seeing at the moment as you know, the, the key fundamental uh, opportunities for communication teams in government and the public sector and the things that they should be on top of and perhaps the things that they should be testing and learning and becoming more capable in? I would say that 
a common denominator, a challenge across economic systems and political systems is to reach a broader audience. We see it very clearly in what central banks are trying to accomplish now. We see it uh, in many countries and many systems. Why is this happening? Um, development of the growth of internet and social media enabled more people to express their views on economic policy matters. What is called digital citizenship enables people to experience each other, express their views digitally and form communities, digital communities. These communities and individuals expect greater transparency and they raise the expectations for accountability by economic policy institutions. In many countries, developments after the global financial crisis also contributed mm. to uh, you know, uh, decline in trust in experts in economic policy institutions. So policymakers will probably have to work harder in the future to explain their policies and to show that they merit support from these audiences. How you accomplish this, how you talk to a broader audience which speaks different languages and has different interests and needs and concerns, this is a growing challenge for policy institutions and for experts. And this is across the board, as I mentioned. It's um, it's 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 a global phenomenon, reaching a broader audience, explaining yourself to a broader audience. So, how is the IMF uh, communications department perhaps reorganising or reprioritising its efforts to be more effective in communicating to that broader audience? On several fronts, we are trying, David, it's difficult. Um, what we build up is a stronger capacity, significantly stronger capacity in digital communications in various social on various social media platforms. It's a new um, it's a new unit. It's a new team. It's growing capacity. Another issue is especially for us for IMF uh, languages you need to find ways to address your audience in languages they speak. So it's a matter of translations, it's a matter of finding also channels that they prefer. Some prefer traditional media still more, some prefer visuals, some prefer maybe audio. You need to know cultural uh, preferences in this regard, try to fine-tune your communications to these cultural preferences. It's also timing uh, for us as a channel, challenge with uh, time differences across the world, how we make sure that we embrace um, these various teams working in um, various parts of the world. So it's probably easier to list challenges <laughs> than <laughs> solutions. So in terms of that, which is this whole uh uh, you know, the, the challenge, I think you've articulated it beautifully, but I think in terms of complexity, it would be hard to imagine a, a government or public sector 
organization with more complexity than the IMF, just as you've identified there about languages, about cultural differences, about channels in different markets. How, what skills do you have to have inside your team that can help you uh, to, to change and to change effectively so as that you are improving the impact, as you, you were mentioning before? The IMF has unique challenges. It also has unique strengths. Uh, I'm a, <laughs> the team is a very international. In communications department, we have people working from all continents and so many countries and cultures that bring this unique perspective to whenever you design communications to a particular region or country, you always have experts. Yeah. They always can help you with cultural nuances, uh, with nuances of language, with nuances maybe of what is the best timing to try to speak uh, with uh, these countries. Timing of their business day, I mean, when they consume news better, uh, what are the best channels for them. So it's, um, you know, unique challenges, unique opportunities. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? They, you know, the... The impact of technology, uh, you know, the driving of that 24-7 never-ending news cycle, but also the capability that you then have to be able to be publishing through 24-7, which I'm sure the IMF has to do because of its it, the remit that it has. How, how then has the communications department there dealt with that particular change where we've moved from a a more static world in the analog world to a far more active, um, faster, content-driven working environment, which is, as you said before, um, meeting the needs driven by digital citizenship, you know, those needs for uh, personalisation, the needs for transparency, the needs for accountability. How How is the IMF communication department changing its work practices and its priorities so it can be effective in this, in this new world? Um, yes, uh, David, we became a department that never sleeps. <laughs> uh, you know, on very practical level, uh, it's now possible to issue a press release globally to the fund's entire database of many thousands media uh, from your cell phone. It's possible to post almost uh, from home uh, major documents, uh, major um, publications. Technology is very important. It's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. It's double, double-sided, you know, uh, sword. And another thing is that we became almost uh, 24-7. And I don't know whether it's good, maybe not so good for families, but this availability of uh, information technology, we check our emails, we check our news uh, packages, 24-7, I'm not sure we uh, disconnect. And some people even complain that they cannot disconnect even when they go on vacation. So it's it's almost uh, professional deformation, 24-7 cycle. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge, and I know you know, and this is the, the whole social media piece and, and that connectivity that you know the, the issues of mental health in social and communication departments, because as you say, they people struggle with being able to disconnect from from their work. So, it, are you doing any work in that particular area to make sure that the health of of people working inside the department is is maintained? <laughs> yes, uh, there is an effort, of course, to secure work-life balance. Uh, there is appreciation that this is very important, in fact, even for productivity at the end. Um, whether we succeed, I think it's hard for me to say. Uh, I think it may be very different from individual to individual. We do have flexible work arrangements, Um People can work from home uh, to address some maybe needs, but I'm not sure it helps with disconnect. In fact, some people complain that they are more devoted and more focused when they work from home <laughs> because they are not uh, distracted by meetings yeah. <laughs> or at least at least less so. Um, I am not sure I have the clear answer to this. No, no. Well, I, I'm not sure anybody has because I think the other thing is we're so very early uh, in this transformation in terms of of the time. I think we're still evolving and adapting to these, you know, these new tools that we're still actually trying to understand what is the most effective way, um, not only for the people who work in these departments, but for the audiences receiving the information. But then to understand you know, what types of information, what channels, at what particular times of the day. There's an endless amount of research and review that can be done. And as soon as you probably think that something is settled, uh, something changes again. And so, you know, I'm, I, look, I don't think there is an answer, um, but it's just really that, I think, con constant evaluation of where you are and being able to make uh, good judgments at the right time based on the best available evidence to, uh, you know, to, to be able to tell your story effectively. Yeah, someone said recently, I fully agree with you, David, someone said recently, we live in an environment of wealth, of the wealth of information and poverty of attention. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And I think that, again, comes back to that power of personalization and understanding and I think you made a good point earlier around the non-technical language and being able to express very complex um, concepts uh, and break them down into a, an accessible format so people will uh, consume that information. How in fact and, and what advice do you have for, for people working in, in communications around working with technical people in policy areas, um, you know, th this increasing need to make information accessible, but when you have subject, subject matter experts who are, you know, perhaps less engaged with um, the need for accessibility and, and more, more engaged around the integrity of the story and they feel that everything has to be um, put into a story and it has to be expressed in a particular way. It's a never-ending uh, conversation between communicators and technical people. But I think appreciation is growing of the need to make adjustment if 
you want people to understand you. Um, we are trying to find, of course, a balance between simplifying the language and delivering the message uh, unchanged. It's a challenge when you simplify language, there is a risk that you will also change and simplify the message. The message has to remain unchanged. The message has to be delivered in its correct um, form and shape and meaning. So it's we have a joke that um, there is it's it's your grandmother test. Uh, if you cannot explain it to your grandmother, you maybe need to work more on your explanation. Uh, but yes, again, I don't think some issues uh, are resolved, uh, and this is one of them. Mm. Where is the right answer? Uh, obviously, uh, there is appreciation that it needs to be simplified if you want to reach a broader audience. And when we speak with technical people, they all will immediately agree that they want a broader audience. Uh, but how to accomplish this in a quality way and an efficient way that still we're still finding answers. I think we made some very good progress in this regard over you know, recent years, but still remains a lot to be done. And and what are some of the the techniques that you've used to to make that progress? You know, to be to be good at it because this comes to the essential sort of human qualities of people who need to be in communications departments, um, who are good at translation, who are built good at building confidence with those technical people. So, what are some of the things that you've done to build that confidence? You know, that, that this maybe comes to some um, products that communications department works on. For example, blogs. Um, blogs help to translate uh, more complicated products, uh, research papers, technical papers, to a broader audience and deliver key messages. And experts then can, of course, read more technical stuff. And people developed these skills, people working on these products. This is only one example. We also have podcasts, we also have videos, we also have a quarterly magazine, finance and development, which is doing wonderful uh, job translating more complex issues into to a broader audience in a very, very, um, very interesting and very engaging way. So this team of people working on developing uh, products that take to a broader audience messages from technical stuff, I think they build enormous expertise in this kind of translation you you are talking about. And they build also relations across the institution and people trust them. They understand that they will read very attentively the underlying analysis the deeper technical products and advice on translation, quote-unquote. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that. This is a common theme um, that's emerged over the last, I don't know, six months since we've been, uh, well, just a, a theme that's come through the podcast in talking to different people, this sense that communications people have the responsibility to get up out from behind their desks and go and engage 
and lead the conversation and lead the discussion and and build that um you must be close to an airport there somewhere are you you know, July 4th. Oh, July 4th. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That's Mr. Trump's big uh, uh, <laughs> military. Uh, okay, I was reading about that in the Washington Post this morning. <laughs> yes, we, you, now you hear the sound. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, so your views on that, because I think this is a fun, you know, often, and I think in the digital age, we can get lost you know, creating content and sitting down and making a guess and it's easy to, you know, create infographics and it's, inf- you know, but that sense of we're, we're really in in the people business as communicators and it's essential that we go and create that confidence through one-on-one human interaction and then go and translate that. Um, but you really need to do that piece first before you start creating any sort of content. That's absolutely correct. Yes. Yes, you are right. So in terms of uh, the techni- the technology piece, which I think is the, the other big emerging part of it um, in terms of, you know, particularly the changes that have not only come um, to pass now, but what is promised in the future, you know, driven by artificial intelligence, uh, and you know the continued growth of mobile, uh, the impact of automation, machine learning, all of these technologies which are going to continue to refine the way that we tell our story, the impact and growth of voice. How are you staying on top of that technology uh, challenge? And when you when you mentioned it uh, early and you went through the different parts of your department, you didn't mention that there was uh, a technology component. So how, how are you working with the ICT department to make sure that your platform is not only fit for purpose today, but is ready to take on those big opportunities that are not that far away? David, have you worked at the fund? It seems like you know very well about our internal work. <laughs> Yes, uh, we, we work very closely uh, with IT department, broadly speaking, and they also have sort of uh, similar to communications function, they have creative services. So these two teams work together, technology, and they are very creative, uh, people uh, working in creative services, uh, uh, so much for the name, of course. And uh, people working in communications department, yes, we were just discussing, believe it or not, about two weeks ago, how to deal with new um, things that we see emerging, voice search, visual search. All of this is already out there, you know, this automated translation, you go, you just have an app and you Mm. go to other countries and it's translated to you automatically. People are using this already in their practical life. So what will it mean for communications products? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And again, you know, that, that piece of around translation that you mentioned earlier. So again, you know, what advice do you have then um, for people in terms of their engagement with the ICT area? How can they be most effective to get the, the biggest impact and the biggest benefit from working with those areas? You know, I think it is about thinking outside of the box. 
In the years to come, it appears that change will be the only constant. Things that we use now may not be in use three years from now. It's about probably forward-looking thinking, most important element of this whole story and being open to change and being creative and innovative and accept that you will have to live with the change. There is no finish line. And it's it's a big challenge, especially for institutions that have certain established procedures and ways of doing things. And to move to uh, a situation when change will be normal, evolving change, it is very difficult, but this may be the future. Which obviously comes back to leadership, doesn't it? That ultimately the leadership needs to give the organisation the permission uh, to be able to experiment, uh, to test and to learn and to understand. And again, um, your advice, what would your advice be to communications people who are perhaps looking to lead into their organisations? How how can they convince the, the senior executives... Um, that of exactly what you're talking about, that there is going to be a need to take risks if the organisation is going to most effectively explain the benefits of its policies and programs, uh, regulations, services and other things? How to convince the leadership that communications is important? Uh, That is your question? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 the question. It's not so much the you know. I, I suppose I, and, and taking a line from what you were saying before, particularly at the IMF, is that there's now an acceptance that communications yes. is certainly a you know a fundamental um, strategic lever for the organisation uh, to use. But it's that next piece, which is to say, not only is it important, but it's going to continue to change and you have to accept that what we're doing today, as you said, is not going to be probably appropriate in, you know, 18 months, two years, three years down the track. So how do communications teams build that confidence such that the leadership will allow them to experiment uh, in order for them to remain relevant? I would say that it was through very hard work Uh, through very hard work and also through the challenge of dealing with crisis and uh, post-global financial crisis uh, crisis challenges, where communications department and communications team proved that uh, it can deliver, it can deliver very significant improvements in terms of explaining policy messages in terms of building support for reforms, in terms of getting broader audience to accept and to understand what should be done, what needs to be done. So this was earned by hard work for communications department over years. To accomplish this on the spot, if there is no... um, acceptance of this on the part of the leadership, I think this may be um, 
this may be challenging. Maybe examples of other institutions can help how it works in other institutions, in other countries, in other policy areas, and what benefits they reap uh, from enabling communications to integrate with operations and to be engaged in the process from the early stages and guide the process on how it will be received by external audiences. Yeah, because that, we, yeah, that that particular challenge that is is again, uh, I think for a lot lot of communications departments, uh, and in in uh, government and the public sector, is that that sense that they're not there at the origination point, and they're perhaps left out of the conversations, and just you know it's it's seen as an end of the line function as opposed to a strategic function. Yes, that is the issue, uh, and we see it. Uh, we see it in many institutions, I, I fully agree with you, we also see this increasing recognition of the role of communications as a policy tool in its own right. And authorities building up communications capacity and uh, getting communications people on board at early stages, at policy formulation stages. I know some central banks inviting communications people to policy-making decisions. They want to hear immediately on the spot how this may be received by the broader public, what they will be presenting. So in a sense, communicators provide feedback to decision-making. It's at different stages, at different countries, institutions, but the trend, I think, is very encouraging. Yes, I would agree with you, and I'm very pleased to to know that you know, as you know, the, the exposure that you would have at a global level to understand that that is the trend, because it certainly makes sense. Uh, and and again, as you were mentioning earlier, you know, the impact and the importance of communication as technology continues to fundamentally change the way people send and receive information, the growth in connectivity, the growth in mobile communications is only going to become more important um, and that is obviously what's fueling this trend that, that you're seeing. And it's probably going to become more difficult because in about maybe five to ten years everybody on earth will have broadband access and when everybody has, everyone has a voice, the level of noise will unavoidably increase. So policymakers will have to work harder to make themselves heard, understood, and believed through this level of noise. And we see it already now happening. They will have also to address the challenges of fake news and misinformation, which may be also growing. So they need to really think very seriously about communications capacity. Well, Olga, thank you so much for being very generous with your time and uh, patiently explaining to me and to the audience just exactly the work there at the IMF. And just before you go, um, I would like to just mention the, the paper that you wrote, The Frontiers of Economic Policy Communications. I'm not sure how you fitted it in with everything else that you've got going on in your job. <laughs> Um, but what was the what was the purpose? What was the thinking behind um, putting together that paper, which I would encourage people to go and have a read because it's a 
it's, it's very accessible piece of, of writing. Um, oh, thank you, David. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it, and again, it 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 it. it it, it sort of certainly uh, situates communications as a central policy function and, and tool. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's 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 well worthy of people reading it. But again, just what what was the purpose of doing it, uh, David? Um, I would like for policymakers to realize that there is room for one policy area to draw from experiences in the others. And the paper indeed surveys a number of policy areas and communications challenges in these areas. So the idea is that um, whether it's uh, a person in the Ministry of Finance or Central Bank, they can have an overview of the entire economic policy area uh, communications. And the, the goal was to help authorities in their efforts to make communications and policy tool and use communications to explain their policies more efficiently. And, you know, at the IMF, uh, this idea received great support, not only in communications department from our communications director, Jerry Rice, but also from other departments, from monetary policy and fiscal affairs department and research department and policy review department. It was, um, again, um, to, the, to, the, uh, to your earlier question about whether communications is recognized well at the fund as important, that was clearly um, recognition of uh, utility and importance and importance of communication, communications. Well, indeed. Well, I think it's a, a very effective tool. And as I mentioned just before we got started in the interview, I know it's being read widely in uh, a lot of the economic departments here in Australia and I'm sure in different parts of the world um, as well. But again, great demonstration of leadership from the IMF in this very uh, critically important and challenging and evolving and growing um, uh, part of uh, the economy. So congratulations to you and to the leadership of the IMF for actually recognising that it uh, is important that these issues be discussed. So again, Olga, I'll, um, I'll let you get back to the Jets. I'll let you get back to Mr. <laughs> Trump's uh, show of force there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the fireworks will be coming soon. <laughs> okay. So thank you so very much for, for being so generous with your time today. Congratulations on, on all of your success. Um, I look forward to further conversations in the future. Um, we will uh, certainly continue to watch the, the growth and the progress of the IMF and, uh, and, and how it deals with the challenges that will continue to come and how it continues to deal with uh, the, the change that is uh, ever-present in all of our lives. So thank you so much to you for your time today, and to you, the audience, thank you so much. A very special conversation with obviously a clearly very talented, skillful, and experienced communicator who is sitting right at the centre of global communications as it relates to economic policy and really um, that's a very clear explanation of what's going on. So if you haven't as yet taken on some of these challenges, again, walk before you run, 
But I think there's a real roadmap there from the IMF um, as to how you can start to integrate communications into your policy making so as it you can be more effective as the challenges can come and continue to come. So anyway, thanks again for coming back uh, this week. We'll be back at the same time in a couple of weeks. So for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.